Welcome to the Highly Objective Podcast, where we talk to cannabis industry executives and investors and go into the weeds on recent news. Yay! I'm uh, the CEO of WM Technology, the parent company of Weed Maps and then WM Business. And I've been with the company seven years. I've been the CEO for the last, uh, at this point, three and a half years. So I've, I've been here through scaling the company and then taking it public when we went public on NASDAQ in uh, June of last year. So uh, in terms of my background, uh, I have a background doing, um, originally I was a lawyer focusing on tech, um, startup type transactional work. Uh, and then I migrated into doing sort of more operational advisory with in, in sort of the finance side of things. And then that led me to, to come to WM Technology. So it's been an interesting evolution and journey. But uh, yeah, at this point, uh, we are, I believe, the largest technology company servicing the cannabis space. And we have the largest market Place, online marketplace for cannabis goods uh, in the U.S. So uh, it's been really exciting to watch the growth. When I joined, we were roughly 70 people, and we're we're, we're closing in on 800 people now. And tell me about remind me again from that you know rebranding standpoint, where I think prior to going public, I think you guys changed the name to the parent company WM Technology. But obviously, mm-hmm. most consumers recognize uh, the company as Weed Maps and the consumer marketplace. Um, so, when did that take place, and, and how's that kind of you know new parent company branding going? Yeah, so you know, I think we always had sort of a, a parent company before as WM Holdings, but um, you know, I think part of it was a reflection that look, when when the company was founded, it's fourteen years old, so we're an incredibly old company. I think older than most people realize. It was it was around this concept of building this marketplace, weed maps. And as that grew and scaled, we saw an opportunity to looking at um, the solutions you needed either for businesses to manage their data in the marketplace, because buying and selling cannabis for consumers, managing what you have in inventory for retailers and brands is, is, is a data problem. It's a very complex data problem. But um, we saw just a, a natural uh, hand meets glove need to sort of have a set of solutions and tools that could help businesses be power users of the marketplace or um, let them like better retarget and go after consumers to shop, to shop again, to uh, claim deals, that sort of thing. And so that led to a gradual expansion of our SaaS portfolio, which is WM Business. And so part of the reason for that parent company naming is a reflection of the fact that there are two highly interconnected but distinct parts to the business. On one place, you have the Weed Maps Marketplace. And on the other side, um, and look, spiritually, we were trying to solve for a lot of things that Amazon wished it did earlier, which are things like um, you know, having CRM tools. And we did that with our Sprout solution, having um, in e-com embeds to help the businesses power e-commerce on their own website for transactions off the marketplace. So what Amazon probably wishes it had done with Shopify. Uh, so that's our WM store solution, um, looking at things like our delivery logistics. If orders are coming through in delivery legal states, how do you manage the compliance and logistics? And that's with Canvea solution uh, that we had, as well as WM Dispatch, which is another solution. Um, you know, and so the list kind of goes on, but but at the end of the day, that that was less a rebrand and more sort of uh, you know, putting a name over the company as we went public that sort of covered the fact there's a broad, broader basket of services and for retailers and brands, they're coming to us with a very, you know, enterprise type set of features and requests. And for consumers, they're trying to learn about cannabis and find the, the cheapest weed they can. So it's different use cases and it's different branding for different audiences. 
Yeah, you bring up a pretty interesting point about the WM technology suite, right? You guys have reach users, convert users, fulfill demand, retarget users, and optimize workflows. And, and within this, um, you've acquired some companies like Sprout, like the, the recent Enlightened acquisition. Um, so are they coming to you or are you sort of going to them and saying, hey, we, we need better ways to convert users in Enlightened's case? And you know, you, you scour the space and figure out who the leader are there and then go after that for an acquisition? Or are these companies coming to WM Technology and saying, hey, we want to sell, we want to sell to you guys, here's how we fit into your platform? Yeah, so it, it's interesting. It's a bit of both. And, I, and to be honest, we, we can talk about sort of the broader macro and how the sector's doing. But, um, you know, we, we have a lot of intentionality about the solutions that fit in with what we're doing. And generally, that's a, as, as you hit the nail on the head, it's a tight nexus to the marketplace. And it's stuff that plays in that spectrum of how does a business augment demand? How does it reactivate that demand? And how does it convert on that demand, getting people to shop? So we're in the business of helping retailers and brands get transactions. Um, and so the, that, that's really the unifying theme, whether it be the marketplace or that SaaS set of solutions. And so we have certain things that we're looking for. I think we're interested in the CRM space and that sort of thing. But um, you know, I think good companies are very good at making the buy versus build decision. Um, we have an engineering product and design team that numbers nearly 300. So it, you know, we build most of our stuff internally, uh, but we have, a, 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 I think, a, a pretty uh, talented corp dev team that's constantly scouring, looking at what's going on. And as we've seen more turmoil hit the markets now, we're probably getting inbound at least one or two times a week from companies that are looking for either uh, you know, full-on acquisitions or asset divestitures, or they're looking for strategic partnerships and that sort of thing, um, including you know, finding ways to be resellers of parts of our WM business solution set, which has been an increasing request that we've gotten from, from technology providers. So um, you know, it's a little bit inbound, it's a little bit outbound, but in terms of what we look for, I think our bar is pretty high in that we want to find uh, companies that are lean, that are nimble, I think that's pretty core to our ethos. Um, so it tends to be smaller founder-led teams, uh, companies that are either profitable or have like a pretty clear line of sight to profitability. Um, and then uh, I think a tech stack that's sufficiently mature that uh, where there's an sort of an aqua hire element where the engineers are of a, a caliber that we'd, we'd want to bring onto the team. Um, and there's a there there with the technology where we're not going to have to lift and shift or rip and replace or whatever sort of catchy term you want to use where, you know, where the, the code base stands on its own. And so, um, you know, I think while it maybe it, we've done, I think at this point, four acquisitions in the last year, um, I, I, I wouldn't expect that to be the norm. It just so happened that we're in this time where I think it, it you know, having the size and scale that we do, uh, let us kind of uh, get some great kind of tuck in acquisitions. And, and the other two, are you talking about Canvaya and Cancurrent? Yeah, so or Canvaya, Cancurrent, uh, Sprout, which is a CRM solution, and then Enlighten. Uh, Canvaya and Cancurrent, they were sort of uh, tied together products, but Can Canvaya was a delivery logistics software, which we actually um, have been uh, integrating really seamlessly into the, the Weedmaps marketplace. And we just had uh, our first MSO kind of uh, start piloting using it uh, as they, the MSOs think about doing delivery. And then CanCurrent is kind of a power integrations and connectors tool. Um, so that's really useful for businesses that are trying to stitch disparate pieces of software together or 
uh, more seamlessly integrate in with weed maps, whether it be brands trying to have dynamic brand catalog integration, or uh, we use it to power some of our POS integrations because we integrate with almost every major POS in the cannabis space for ingesting data and conversely pushing orders back. Um, but yeah, those are the acquisitions we've done. Yeah, no, I, I've started noticing Kimbea as an alternative to Onfleet at a lot of dispensaries lately. So uh, it seems like you guys are making good progress there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been, you know, I think, look, uh, the analogy, I, I kind of think of it as the analogy is mountain climbing, where they always say when you, um, you know, uh, er, er, the dangerous parts on the way down, that's where everyone dies. And I think with, with M&A and acquisitions, the dangerous parts on the post-merger integration. And so we've been putting a lot of effort into making sure that they're technically integrated in, unifying, you know, sales forces, um, unifying Salesforce implementation, you know, all the things that let us get economies of scale with bringing them in. And then separately, we're, we're starting to unlock these uh, solutions that I'm really excited about that are kind of the union between, say, uh, the marketplace and the CRM and things like that. And so we're, we're actually coming into beta or going into live launch with features that are hybrid features between one or more parts of these solutions. And what's your view on, on owning the POS? Because, you know, I'm looking at your, your platform here in those five categories we discussed, and you have POS integrations, but would you ever, you know, acquire your own POS? So for us, I think our, our you know, the POS space is an interesting space right now. It feels like in many ways it's growing more fragmented. And separately, I think there's a race to give out free software and free hardware as sort of the price of entry. Um, I, I think separately, a number of the solutions we provide, whether it be WM Store, the Ecom Embed, the Delivery Logistics, and Lighten with the in-store menuing, are solutions that naturally sort of work well with POSs and frankly can increase the value proposition of POSs. And so I think our preference has been to go to the POSs, get these really tight integrations, and we've invested extremely heavily in integrations for, for some time now, um, and say, look, you can increase your feature set at a cost-effective rate uh, by integrating with these other solution sets. And, and the thing is, is we've gotten a lot of traction with that. It has for these POSs that are trying to, you know, chase profitability or increase margin. Uh, it's really exciting to be able to like meaningfully augment their feature set in a cost-effective way by, by white labeling or sort of integrating with our solutions. Um, and, and, you know, and in that regard, I think we get more scalability of the platform. And frankly, we build a better relationship partnering than trying to sort of displace these, these POS folks, especially given how diverse the POS landscape is right now. Yeah, it's certainly less POS systems than in 2018, but there's, uh, you know, I was looking at a, a landscape earlier, there are still 50 plus um, that are out there. Um, and I'm sure you know, there's about 10 to 20 that you guys must integrate with uh, very often. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, our for so we have live menu and orders integration, and then we have on our roadmap working with POSs to do things like rapid check-in integration, where you can potentially check in off of uh, the Weed Maps app to you know kind of ease that check-in pain point, or um, more seamless integration around bi-directional deals integration and. Uh, I think at this point, it's it's actually several dozen POSs that we have integrations that are live or in in beta or development with. Uh, and so, yeah, and I'd say probably every, honestly, at this point, probably every three to six months, I, you know, because I try and get out in the field and pulse check as much as I can, but probably every three to six months, I come across a new POS I've never heard of before. That's, uh, that's not good. <laughs> um, and, and strangely, the clients are usually very happy with them. So, uh 
But, you know, I think the thing that really excites me is how can we be a good partner to the POSs and help deepen their stickiness with the, with the client? Um, you know, and I think to me, if I can sort of be a white label reseller or have a reseller agreement with a POS, that is a-okay with me. Okay. Good, good to know that. Um, and, and it seems like, you know, some of the key metrics that you report on, average monthly paying clients has been, you know, growing at a nice pace. Um, curious about that new MSO customer. Um, would that customer count as one or would, depending on how many retail locations uh, they have, count as, you know, 100 plus? So generally, um, generally we look at sort of this, if it's on the retail side, we'll look at the individual retailer count as opposed to rolling it up because that would inject a lot of variability and, and I would I would argue inaccuracy in our numbers in terms of sort of the client count going up or down based on whether there's divestitures or acquisitions. So we're generally looking at end licensed retail points. And for brands, we're looking at end individual licensed brands, although there, there can be a bit more consolidation because obviously a brand will have, um, you know, potential multiple sub house brands. So we're, there we're looking more at the central brand entity. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, even some of these MSOs have several different retail banners or in a state or a city, they kind of keep the, the same brand that they acquired versus converting them, right? We're kind of seeing that with like Columbia Care where they're converting mm -hmm. over to cannabis. And then you have their own integration with the Crespo Labs acquisition and how that might change those retail banners. Yeah, it's just it's just generally easier to look at the individual end license um, because that is the ultimate sort of source of truth. How many and, and that includes how many licenses are there in the state? How has that license count grown? How many of those licenses are on on, on us? I think we're really trying to lean towards uh, a, a pretty accurate picture, whether it be for you know public investors or when we look at in, you know incentivizing and setting goals for internal teams based on. Um, you know, on that marketplace, we really want to have a, a, a ubiquitous adoption rate. That's the end goal. It's the end goal of every marketplace to have ubiquitous adoption by sellers coming into that marketplace and opening up shop. And then on the, the monthly revenue per paying client, you know, that number's kind of hovered around 3,800 the last three quarters. Um, you know, what's a goal there to, to get it to? You know, is there a certain number you want to be at a year from now, three, five years from now? Well, there, you know, there's an interesting thing. I think there's a couple levers for that growth that are really exciting where, my, you know, my goal would be to drive that meaningfully higher. Obviously, we have to uh, deal with deal with sort of any sort of individual state headwinds that occur. But so, uh, so first of all, within the marketplace, so we, you know, we do, you know, <laughs> transactions through the marketplace that measure in the B billions. Um, but because of federal illegality, we can't put payment rails in and we can't do a take rate on those transactions like every marketplace does. So what you're left with is businesses that want to appear more prominently in that marketplace can pay to advertise, to appear more prominently, to get more conversions. And so this is a perfect analog to Amazon's fastest growing revenue segment, which is advertising within the Amazon marketplace. Um, and they are the operative metric is not clicks or impressions, it's conversion. And so for Amazon, generally, you're looking at roughly a 10% conversion rate for a business trying to boost its products or appear in front of the right consumer eyes in the marketplace. Um, and in our marketplace between online and offline conversion, you're looking at a factor that's probably closer to 20%. That is a hallmark of a good, strong specialty online marketplace. So one, um, when you look at the return on ad spend for that segment, you know, you have a five to eight X ROAS within the marketplace. 
that's a huge opportunity for growth. That basically means a business putting $1 in is averaging five to $8 in revenue coming out the other side. And that's a, that's a, a ratio that businesses should be taking all day. So that should be a driver of what the revenue is per paying client yeah. is simply seeing a normalization where they continue to sort of grow their revenue by paying to get that advertising. The other thing is across the SaaS solutions, um, you know, we've meaningfully expanded our SaaS solutions. We've generally intentionally uh, underpriced and have the base bundle of getting access to the marketplace, menu normalization, using like the e-com embed and that sort of thing at roughly $500 a month. And that can vary a bit from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And then for things like the CRM or for Canvaya, you can have incremental fees additionally. So we're you know, there's a growth path there where right now I think we're chasing after adoption and penetration rates, but where um, whether it be adding analytics to that offering or whether it be just sort of adding upsell packages or taking sort of the toll task-based pricing you get with CRM and logistics and things like that, that you can increase the revenue there. So you have a SaaS growth factor on that side of things, including uh, doing additional product tiers and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and then the, the last thing is obviously, you know, you need something like say banking or something like that to pass, but you know, you can obviously at some point we have baked in a, a take rate on the transactions that occur through the marketplace. Got it. So kind of a, a land and expand strategy today. Yeah. On the, on the, on both the marketplace and on the SaaS side. So on the marketplace, we want to see as many cannabis transactions happen through that marketplace because it's way more convenient for consumers, easier to find the cheapest deal and for businesses. Uh, it's the easiest way to manage your data and make it transactable and let people browse and shop in a digital setting. And then on the SaaS piece, you know, these markets are feeling disruption. Good SaaS solutions are how business chase margin, uh, especially in compressed markets. And that's what we're seeing here. And, and I'm curious, you know, with all this M&A and consolidation in the industry, how does that impact WM technology? You know, it's a, it's a funny thing because um, I, I get that question a lot and people say, well, is one type of market better for you versus another, things like that. But the reality is, is we don't, when we look at markets, we generally look at them not as states, but as individual markets within states. And so our model, whether it be the SaaS solutions or whether it be the marketplace has proven itself out and is incredibly useful and effective for um, you know, regions that have low retail density, that have high retail density, that have a low number of brands, that have a high number of brands, you know, that sort of thing. And so you know, I think the interesting thing is, is when you see consolidation, when you see big players, you know, you think about this, uh, when Pepsi wants to do digital commerce and that sort of thing, they look for big enterprise partners to do digital commerce. When they want to increase reach or increase adoption or purchase of, of, uh, of new products, they look for centralized, you know, agents of record or ways to really scale. And so for those enterprise clients, being able to have one-stop shopping with us is incredibly effective especially when that's one-stop shopping that moves across all these state lines compliantly, given that every state is for all intents and purposes, uh, its own country. Um, so I, I would say that, um, you know, there are certain factors that favor our business model. One is having a low illicit market rate in the jurisdiction because, you know, we can't, we don't have illicit businesses on our platform. And so, um, you know, that's one thing, but in terms of sort of consolidation, more or less, we're, we're generally relatively agnostic on that. Uh, you know, that, that's good to hear. And then, you know, on that point about sort of the, the states um, operating, you know, as very different markets, are there certain markets that, you know, WM technology does better in? I, I think I remember, you know, Oklahoma is like a, a pretty good market for, for you guys, for example. 
Yeah, I'd say generally more, the, the more mature the state gets and the more functioning it gets, the better, the better we perform. So if you look at states that have had a longer period of operation that have um, lower illicit market rates versus higher, we tend to perform well in. I think in, um, just to give you, I, I won't call out specific states, but you know, everyone knows them. There are certain states where there's extremely limited number of licenses. It's an oligopoly and as an end result, 90, 95% of all cannabis sales happen in the illicit market. No two ways around it. That's not a great state for us. We can provide SaaS services. Um, in fact, we, you know, parts of our SaaS solution are offered to providers in the state I'm thinking of. We can offer those SaaS solutions. We can help them with menuing, with uh, facilitating online e-commerce, but we can't change the fact that most consumers are saying, whether it be due to convenience, pricing, or better product selection, they're going to shop illicit. So, so not to make you call out specific markets, but in these oligopolistic markets, you're, you're saying it's 90 to 95% illicit. Like that's, that's a really high number. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, and this is the data that, that we're getting back from folks. I mean, look, even California, the general consensus estimate is 70 to 75% of cannabis sales happen in the illicit market. And California is generally regarded as a very robust legal market. You know, for people who doubt that, the easiest way to point at it is I can I can drop someone in Riverside, San Bernardino, Kern County. I mean, counties that if you add up their landmass are bigger than, you know, 75% of the states in the U.S., you're going to have to drive probably on average two hours to get to the nearest dispensary. Um, the other thing is, is that, you know, I think in these, you know, heavily, heavy, heavy oligopoly states, they don't really need to compete on product selection. They don't need to compete on pricing. And then you're lingering on sort of a long drive to get there. And it's just too much for most consumers, especially when uh, in post-legalization, whether it be in a state, whether it be medical or recreational, the police generally refocuses resources on other things other than going after illicit cannabis sales. So since it obviously benefits you guys to you know, have the illicit market wither away. Um, what are some of the initiatives that the company is sort of, you know, working on to, to help facilitate that and obviously benefit from it? Yeah, look, the, the, the interesting thing is, so we have a, a pretty large public policy team uh, and we're pretty active in shaping and guiding policy in a number of states. We speak to a number of the legislative and, and uh, groups that, that are thinking about this, like the National Governors Associations and things like that. The A number one biggest thing that has a really strong correlation to reducing illicit market size is increasing licensure. If you get generally the, the data that, that, that we've found and in, in working with other groups is generally if you get to about one retailer per 10,000 residents, you're going to have a massive impact on the illicit market. And ideally, you're getting more down towards one per four or one per 5,000. Um, if you look at sort of- So I want to press yeah. a bit more on that number. I mean- you know, would some people argue that that might be, you know, too low of a number? I, I don't know. I forget the exact stat, but is it like one for every 2,000 uh, consumers for alcohol, for, for example, from a liquor store standpoint? Is that kind of where you're yeah. drawing this number and ratio from? No, so actually, we, we, when we did the research on that and drew the ratio, we actually took data plots and looked at correlation rates and looked at what the generally accepted or surveyed illicit market rate was and looked at what the retail density was in different regions. That was the basis of it. It is very, it is telling though, that when you look at that line and when you look at what happens, it actually has a lot of similarities to where you see alcohol density 
even out in certain jurisdictions. And frankly, in jurisdictions that put caps or put quotas on, on alcohol density that have moved over the years, those quotas, which have had much more time to mature and be moved to sort of efficient levels, tend to even out in about the same level. Um, but no, we didn't just slavishly look at this is what alcohol is and then translate it over. I think there's there are structural differences to cannabis where um, you know, potentially you can get away with a, a lower density than alcohol. Um, but I think there's, um, I think there's a pretty open and valid question. If you look at Canada, you know, there are places where, you know, it's normal to have a 20, 30 store chain because you're, you're taking smaller gross, uh, smaller grosses and a slightly lower margin across a larger number of stores and then rolling it up to a central parent level. And so, you know, I think in the U.S., especially in some of the oligopoly states, we have this like golden ticket model. And I think the danger is and what we're seeing is as licenses increase in those jurisdictions. The, you know, the, the businesses aren't necessarily running efficiently and you see declining sale, you know, sales on the same store basis year over year, quarter over quarter as the number of licenses increase. It'd be interesting to see. And, and I want to dive into this later unless you know the, the answer today. But, you know, Ontario right now, there's a, a lot of stores are kind of shutting down, right? Because they almost at one point after federal legalization there in, in October 2018, uh, they had a shortage of stores in Ontario. And now it seems like they have too many. And that's a, a 14 and a half million population. Um, so, so I'm curious to, to, you know, find out what that kind of per capita dispensary ratio is in, in Ontario. So actually, we've done a lot of work in Canada, so I can talk to it a bit. There's a slightly, there's a very different issue there. And the problem is there is the stores in Canada, it's not a density issue. The stores in Canada cannot choose what products they carry. And there's an extreme limitation in what brands and products are available and the quality of those products. And as a corollary, the gray market stores, which operate openly there with really beautiful build outs, generally carry better product at cheaper prices. But the weird thing is, is in Ontario and several of the other provinces, all cannabis that's for consumer consumption has to be bought by the central, in, in Ontario, it's Ontario Liquor. Ontario Liquor buys all the cannabis, chooses what SKUs unilaterally they're going to bring into stock, and then the stores buy, have to buy that product from Ontario Liquor. And you know, many of the stores, I, I'm not saying, I'm not the one asserting this, but many of the stores have said that, on, that Ontario Liquor, who has a, a monopoly on doing online and mail order sales, keeps the best product for themselves before they move it on to them. So all of these stores effectively can't compete on differentiated product selection, differentiated product quality, or frankly, differentiated pricing. And that's the real problem is you have a bunch of stores that are selling the same products that somebody could go online and buy in the mail very conveniently from Ontario Liquor. Right. So there's no real uh, you know, brick and mortar retail experience then. It, it's why you've seen some of the, the chains that have been a bit more noteworthy or successful. It's all about the look and feel. So there's one, there's one chain uh, in, in, in uh, like broader Toronto and actually in Ontario more greatly that looks like a faux grocery store. And it's really lavishly built out. And Are you talking nice. about Supret? Yeah, about Supret. And, and so it looks, it looks great and it's nice, but what they're covering up is that's the means by which they have to compete and yep. draw foot traffic in because it's not going to be on differentiated product selection. I think the it's not a, a density thing or anything like that up there. The single biggest issue is if you let these stores select from whom they buy product, increase the number of producers and the type of product that could be bought. Because the other thing is, is the, the market forces are so attenuated that the suppliers generally don't have to grow and provide quality products. 
you can just move through low quality product because the provincial store is going to buy it. And yeah, maybe there's repercussions eventually, but um, and, you know, and then you're left with these gray market operators like the cafe chain, where you have a chain of gray market stores that generally have much better product and are located right in the central locations in Toronto and Ottawa and places like that. Yeah, no, that, that difference is, is uh, notable. Um, so, so going back to sort of, you know, the, the policy team at, at WM, um, you know, it's, it's 20 people deep. Um, I, I've also noticed that you guys have done a lot in sort of, you know, putting cannabis in a national spotlight in, in a more normalized way, right? Certainly with, with boardroom and then tumbleweeds. Um, so, so are, you know, those two initiatives kind of part of that initiative to, to kind of get more people to open up and, and sort of see that, you know, you should try to control the illicit market and normalize things and then open up more licenses. Is that a part of that or is that something else for the consumer? It, it, it's, it's part of it. I'd say we have, look, we have, I'd say we have three channels in which our, our marketing and sort of how we reach people kind of falls. One is consumer side. And if you look at something like tumbleweeds, especially with new East coast states opening and place like that, where, you know, look at a place in New York and there's not really a, a market yet or, a full like recreational adult use market, um, you know, something like Tumbleweeds is, is kind of intended to raise the elevation of the Weed Maps marketplace brand and let consumers know that, hey, this is a place you can go to find, to shop, to buy cannabis. Uh, if you look at something like what we do with the Super Bowl with the, the Brock Ollie piece and talking about the conversation around cannabis, yeah, that's consumer awareness, but it's also trying to raise and elevate, I think, to help the policy team. I think some of the issues around um, the disparate stigma around cannabis compared to, you know, the, 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 the lack of adverse social impacts or health impacts it has vis-a-vis -vis alcohol. Um, and then there are other things we do that are, are really just very wonky kind of um, policy related things. We're going out and targeting policy groups and things like that. And then the third basket is just hardcore B2B um, marketing and education around our SaaS portfolio and going out to, to enterprise clients. So, you know, in the same way that consumers I hate to reference Amazon so much, but consumers don't get AWS ads and, you know, and separately enterprise, you know, IT groups don't get like, you know, ads for, you know, Amazon Prime Video. Uh, you know, it's the same kind of divide with us. Yeah. I, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I kind of, you know, was wondering why those things were usually, you know, partnered with Weedmaps versus partnered with uh, WM Technology, but totally makes sense. The consumer is more so aware of Weedmaps than they are of the, the parent holding company. Yeah. And, and look, there's whole campaigns we do at trade shows and, you know, sponsoring kind of industry events and all that, where it's just WM business, WM business, and that's sort of everything you see there. Um, and it's the same thing. Our policy team goes under the banner WM policy, because uh, let's just be real. Uh, the, the policy we write, I stand by, it's good. We're transparent. We publish all of it. So people can't accuse us of, of um, you know, uh, advocating for sort of underhanded or scurrilous things. At the end of the day, no, no uh, governor, no legislator, no policymaker wants to say, I, I made great policy, you know, and then say because of the, the people who had weed maps, you know, they, w, they want to say WM policy and this really tie in policy team and that sort of thing. And I think, uh, you know, right, right facet of the company for the right audience. Yeah, I think you guys have been very public about sort of educating the industry as a whole and, and consumers who are curious. And certainly you guys benefit from a larger legal market. So a lot of the work, I think, is very aligned with, with what the company benefits from. 
I, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, you've, you've been around the industry a while now. And um, yeah, look, it, uh, we put a lot of, we put probably an unnatural amount of thought into where we position, uh, who we're targeting with things, you know, who, who we're educating and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I think a lot of our emphasis has really been, um, you know, frankly, if I, if I had to point to one prong that's been the biggest growth sector, it's, it's, it's really leaning into the marketing and education of retailers and brands that we're here, we're your software partner. We're here to help you grow revenue. We're here to be your partner, sort of not this um, necessary evil. Yeah, and I'm, I'm also glad you, you just mentioned you know, providing software to brands as well. So of sort of your, your platform and your five verticals, um, you know, what are the solutions available to brands today to use WM and sort of, you know, another question is, you know, what solutions are you looking to build on um, yeah. near term that will really benefit brands? So we, with brands, I think the brand needs fall into a couple, couple buckets. One is it's really hard for brands to effectively showcase the products they have, the ascribed effects from end users, where those products are sold, um, and have it done real time and make sure that that SKU that's for sale in Oregon is not being shown to California consumers because it might have the same name, but it's a different product. Um, and so we do a, uh, right there with having Weedmaps brand pages. So within the marketplace, brand pages and brand SKU pages, the brands can centrally control how their products syndicate and look not only across Weedmaps, but within WM Store, that e-com embed we use. Um, and then as we tuck Enlighten in, which is that in-store kiosking, menuing, ordering solution that we acquired uh, just recently, it would be able to syndicate seamlessly into the, into the store's own in-store experiences. And so that's a huge amount of um, power for brands. And for brands, it's how do we give them omni-channel control over the data, how their brand and product descriptions look and syndicate across all those different things, whether it's physically in the store on the largest marketplace for cannabis or within stores websites to the extent they're using WM Store. And then I think the other thing is brands need data, I think more so than other groups, what, what products are trending, what uh, average retail prices are. Uh, some brands are trying to adhere to um, MSRP, and so they want to get information on who's discounting when they shouldn't be and things like that. And so we just launched into a, a limited beta a Brands Insights product, um, and that'll be part of the the brand's base monthly package. So we're really excited about that. The early feedback at, for the uh, enterprise brands team that was at Hall of Flowers uh, the other week was, was really strong. And, and is um, that product then going up against like a headset and BDSA in terms of providing that, you know, intelligence at retail to the brands? Uh, I, to some degree, yes, but I'd say largely no, because I think it's really tailored. It, it's a lot more tailored based on sort of um, the data we're seeing across the marketplace. And I think maybe a little more micro uh, micro level in terms of what's actually happening on individual retailer uh, POSs and things like that. So yes, yeah, some similarity, but I think it's really, you know, I think a lot of times when I think of those solutions, it's sort of trying to give broad macro trends. I think they, they almost serve this, um, you know, what, what's the industry movement at large? I know a lot of analysts use it and that sort of thing. And I think this is really trying to get down to helping brands solve op these operational issues that they're facing. Um, so a bit of overlap and I think other areas, not as much. Um, the, the other thing I'd say is, is we are launching into beta embeds for brands. Cause I think one of the things that's plagued some brands is, you know, a consumer goes to a brand website. Well, all right, the products look great, but where are they sold? Or what's the real time list of your products based on the state I'm in? So I'm not seeing 
Illinois products while sitting in Nevada or that sort of thing. And so I'm really excited about that. Again, helping brands scalably manage and educate consumers. Um, and then I'd say the last prong is um, we're really interested in some solutions where brands can kind of go omni-channel. So they can kind of promote or push their products, whether it be on retailer menus on Weed Maps, uh, on the e-com embeds with WM Store, or in-store with those enlightened kiosks. Um, and again, I think this, I, this idea of omni-channel, this idea of helping brands do uh, scalably reach consumers, scalably deploy marketing dollars, scalably drive actual transactions, it's unique, not just to cannabis. I think that's unique to almost CPG anywhere. And I think we're providing, we're, we're building something really cool there. And what's, what's your take on brands in the industry today? You know, there's, there's not so many brands that have 20 million plus in revenue, right? So yeah. even if you're servicing some of these brands that might be a customer, they're, they're smaller, admittedly, uh, potentially probably, you know, depending on what market they're in today, struggling. Um, so, you know, what's your take on, on brands in the industry? So maybe semi-controversial view, maybe not, but um, I think um, I think brand what what we call brand is a consumer being able to recall something, and then the second part is associating characteristics or qualities with that recall of that imagery, that color, that whatever. And I think one of the things is right now is there are not a lot of brands in cannabis in the sense where a consumer looks at it and deeply associates like a series of like a set of characteristics or the value or what it is. Um, you know, and, and I think you see that in other CPG spaces where you see that logo and it might be a type of product you've never bought before, but you're like, that's quality. And I'm, you know, I'm going to, I think that was really like the hallmark of where a lot of like Heinz and Kraft and companies like that kind of did a lot of their growth and domination post-World War II was like, look, if it's got Kraft on it, like it must be good. Like let's buy the yellow cheese. Um, and, uh, I think in the cannabis space, I think the brands are still, pushing to educate consumers. And that one of the things that's tough is part of what dictates a brand is the potency, which has been hard for brands to convey scalably, but it's also like the clinical effect. And, you know, if you're a flower brand and you're really good at flower, that's like a daytime, a great price point, And it's for like daytime consumption, like a little more like uppery, a little, you know, um, you know, or something that's really terpy and has like a great aroma to it. It's hard. It's, it's been hard for brands to effectively convey that, and that's how you form that association. And so, I, I think we can play a really critical part in that. But I think we will see more brands grow and scale and get that recognition. I think there are some national brands that are crushing it, but sometimes they've done it through crossovers with apparel or just raw scale. I mean, obviously, Cookies is a great example of that. Um, but I think we will see more brands kind of make that jump. But I think the other thing that's really tough is what is a brand in multiple states often isn't one brand. You have to do li trademark licensing and things like that. And that kind of blurs, blurs it. You know, there are products that are fantastic in one state that, you know, they open up a new location and they license with the wrong partner and they're not so hot in another state. And that really hurts things. Right. And I think the majority of brands today sort of have to do that licensing model, right? Like the old pals, like the you know, mm -hmm. Miss Grass, very few can be like wild where they control their, their means of production and manufacturing in every state that they're in. Um, so yeah, I think that that quality and that consistency is a part of that brand building as well. And I think brand, brand around form factor is forming to some degree, but I think it's a little fragile. I won't call it out, but there have been brands that developed good affinity and kind of like edibles and gummies specifically that kind of like 
lost it or it, it just feel like didn't really capitalize on that lead. But separately, I look at a place like something like Can. I think the beverage segment's like interesting, especially for more casual or newbie consumers. If they stop doing silly things like, you know, doing 10 milligram dosing and something that looks like beginner friendly. But um, I think Can, you know, interesting uh, application, interesting positioning. Um, I think you know, you associate it with a, a socially conscious, um, you know, LGBTQ led company that um, is, you know, tasty and, you know, and, and I think they've worked on a lot of, you know, I'm sitting here like I'm doing a branding exercise. No, you, you've like hit their, their like brand ethos on the head. So it seems like whatever they're doing in marketing and branding and the money spent to educate consumers on THC beverages have been working. But but one thing I'd argue is if that was like all wrapped around like concentrate, I think it would be a much tougher road uh, than than it is with like frankly they're hitting a beverage they're hitting beverage and they're hitting beverage in a segment that hasn't been heavily hit. Like you get a lot of a lot of beverage before that was either like fake beer or very syrupy like stuff that was like approximating lean. And uh, you know you look at something in the topical space like a Papa and Barclay. I think a lot of people if who are sufficiently familiar with cannabis, you go quick name a topical. They're going to name Papa and Barkley. And I think that, but the thing is that type of association, which is tied to form factor is, is rickety unless you aggressively defend it as we, as I think we've seen in the edible space. Um, and that means continuing to build on it and build on, build on it. Cause it's very easy to make a topical. Let's be honest. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to push you one further there to be a bit controversial. What are your thoughts on MSOs being able to build some of these leading brands uh, either now or in the, the future? I think one of the disadvantages of oligopoly is sometimes you're not as reactive to market trends as you should be. I think it's a bit more okay on the retail side. On the brand side, it can get you out of step with the common consumer. I think there's also the thing that um, if you're, how to say this, I, I think if you're blending your wholesale revenue with your retail revenue, you have a very good incentive to have your retailers carry your house brands, regardless of what consumer engagement levels are. And so I think, I, I think, can the MSOs have great brands? Do they have the money to deploy to do it? Are some of them uh, doing it now? Yes. Uh, are some of them maybe not at the level I would expect they could or should be given the capital they have, the footprint they have? You know, absolutely. And I think part of that is, um, I think there's a bit of mixed messaging because these MSOs are in medical and adult use states. And I think like there's a sometimes a confusing blur of very clinical medical branding that's trying to be more ubiquitously applied in other places. And um, I, I think we're just starting to see some of the MSOs get comfortable with sort of trying to do products that target like the core consumer demographic. You know, it's yeah, most most pack in most alcohol companies generally start with like core hardcore consumers within their segment and then build outward from there. And it sometimes it's felt like a lot of the MSOs are starting with casual consumers and then trying to move backwards into the regular consumers. Yeah, I mean, I get that analogy being at Anheuser-Busch. It's like you start with your core lager or IPA and now you kind of have brand and product extension. You don't yeah. go to the niches and then trying to produce for, for the masses after. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, like, like, ABM Bev didn't start with Michelob Ultra. They moved to it after they sort of dominated the core space. And then they tried selling beer to people who do CrossFit, you know? Yeah, exactly. You, you that, watch that, those commercials. That's incremental growth. That's not your core growth. Yeah. 
Um, cool. You know, th appreciate the time, Chris. Just, you know, last question would be any parting thoughts, you know, what's kind of like a, a hot burning topic you've been thinking about that, you know, you feel the industry maybe hasn't been talking about much, but they should be. I think there are a couple things. I mean, I think one is, um, look, I think for a long time, there was a feeling, uh, there was a feeling that, that, that West, that the West coast, the California way of, um, doing, um, operations were, um, you know, maybe it was, was sort of a legacy way of doing things. And I think increasingly we're seeing this smaller margin focused, nimble, almost ghost kitchen, kind of small footprint, get people in and out, have like a, a kitchen pass type counter where someone's bagging and packing at the back and sending up front that's happening in California. I think we're starting to see the opposite, which is that model is, is the dominant one and is moving east. And I think that we're seeing, and I think that's one thing people are, are missing is that I think, um, Doing it the way California operators are doing it, I think is increasingly gonna become necessary. You gotta do delivery. You have to be able to manage online orders and online order management. You uh, need to think about what's, your, what's the size of your footprint uh, for um, you know, the sales that you do. What are your fixed costs, that sort of thing. So I think that's gonna be one interesting trend. And then um, you know, I'd say the other thing is, um, Trying to think what else has really been kind of grabbing my attention. I, you know, and then I, I think the other thing is going to be um, looking at New York. I, I think people don't, there are a lot of people, I think, still, uh, given that we're kind of all over the place, there are a lot of people who um, are in New York or in East Coast places who, frankly, I think still view legalized cannabis as a somewhat theoretical construct. And I think with New York legalizing, with the size in which it's legalizing, I think we're gonna end up with this strange um, kind of split brain thinking where I think a certain amount of East Coasters who have never really understood sort of a more West Coast based cannabis scene really anchor on New York and New Jersey for their conception of how they think about legalized cannabis and that sort of thing. Because you still run into an issue where when you talk to East Coast, East Coast people on, on finance or just in the, the general run of the mill thing, you know, they, they'll point to like one medical shop in downtown, you know, in, in downtown Manhattan is yeah. sort of like their reference point for cannabis or the idea of that, wait, there's people who do cannabis delivery seems absolutely crazy to them. Um, and so I think that uh, to a degree, people aren't fully appreciating. I think we're going to see like what cannabis is for a lot of East Coasters being defined based on how that market actually opens up. Yeah, I agree with that. I spent time with clients, um, you know, from the East Coast, bringing them out to California. It's a very different market, right? That the retail locations are built differently. The you know number of brands and SKUs that are available are very different. Um, and I think New York's a, a good parallel because already there's a lot of California brands that are in New York. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Right. Uh, any other one? I, I thought you might have had a third one, but but those are are two pretty good uh, parting yeah. thoughts. Um, you know, I would say the only other one, I mean, while well, you're, you're really pressing me, I mean, I, I would say the only other one is, is I think, look, um, I think that we're potentially going to see, uh, I, I think this, I, I think we're, as some of these oligopoly states open up, I think this kind of uh, drumbeat of the people saying there's going to be constant consolidation. I think we may see the first kind of, um, larger scale multi-state operators say, you know what, uh, the parts of this business make, make better sense 
just as that parts as opposed to a whole. And we're not getting the economies of scale. We're not getting the unification of central office operations that we expected that made this roll-up strategy make sense. And I think potentially we see the first cleave or split happen in the next two years. Yeah, no, that's that's something, you know, from the, the Cureleaf um, earnings or, or one of Boris's uh, commentary, right? He could say, I think he said, um, oh, no, actually, this was at Benzinga, where he said, hey, at some point in the future, he could see them divesting retail and keeping a few key retail. Um, but, you know, when you think about it, some of these MSOs, it's very different businesses that are combined into one, right? I mean, just what we're talking about in terms of being a retailer and being a, a manufacturer and brand, two very different businesses. So hard to, to make synergies work there. I mean, it may look, it makes sense in other spaces. Like there's a read that grocery stores tend to be highly regionalized. It's really hard running logistics and supply chain and doing all of these other things. Um, there's a natural economic, you know, evolutionary reason why, why it happens that way. And I guess, I, look, I'm open to all different things. I think I'm constantly thinking about different permutations of how the future can play out. Cause I want to make sure that, you know, we're WM Technologies ready to service them, but I, you know, I keep, if, if not, if the growth, if that model of operations for grocery stores doesn't make sense in cannabis, you know, given that I think cannabis density is going to move to a density that's closer than grocery store, closer to the grocery store density. Well, why not? You know, why, why will, why will it evolve differently? Well, well, on that point then, do you think, um, you know, cannabis ever moves from specialty retail today to being sold at, you know, other places mm -hmm. outside of the dispensary? I think almost impossible. And I think this is some folks, things folks don't fully appreciate. So um, the, uh, look, and the several states are quietly actually diverging their laws from other states to help make sure that interstate commerce doesn't become a reality after federal legalization. You know, we've heard this directly. Uh, but I think the thing is, is that, look, um, alcohol doesn't want cannabis co-sold in liquor establishments because it depresses alcohol sales. And separately, I think this system of almost specialized licenses and the economic value imputed to them has created this very state-by-state, -state, vertically controlled um, uh, industry that's within the state. And I think you have incredibly powerful lobbying organizations that are state-by-state -state based that are very intent on protecting their home rule. And they're also very intent on protecting the economic value they have within those spe cannabis-specific licenses and that sort of thing. Never mind that it's helped by the NIMBYism and regulators assume that if cannabis were sold at a 7-Eleven, children would be going to ruin. That stigma still exists. But there's the fact that cannabis, no, nobody, nobody wants commingling of cannabis less than uh, cannabis licensees themselves. And so I think that that's a, a huge thing. Um, you know, the cannabis industry organizations within legalized states have become incredibly powerful, incredibly effective. And so uh, I don't think that you you ever see that. But then there's also just a broad structural thing. Specialty goods generally get sold in specialty stores and specialty online marketplaces. Mm -hmm. You know, the the largest online marketplaces for tires are specialty tire marketplaces, not Amazon, not these other things. Yeah, people say, well, it's, it's, yeah. yeah, people say, well, that's just it's just tires. Well, just tires. The consumer tire industry was a over a $40 billion industry in the US last year. Like that's nothing to sneeze at, but it's tough, you know, tires and tires are simple, simple compared to cannabis. And so that's the thing. It's already, the, the biggest thing we hear from consumer feedback is I wanna do more price comparison, more clinical effect shopping. Those are the top two things people are shopping by. And going into a dispensary is really daunting and complicated and all that. 
And that, that those are the hallmarks. And you look at all, any of these other, you know, kind of complex goods, computers, electronics, things like that, specialty stores, specialty marketplaces, because people are uh, only able to understand and grok so many things. And that's where you get these, you know, these specialty transactions to help things sell through. Yeah, at MedMen, we really compared, uh, you know, cannabis, especially to retail. It's like, you know, not that neither of us are, are customers, but like an Ulta or a Sephora. Like, there's so many SKUs, so many brands. You, you need that specialty retail for someone to educate you on, on the products and the brands. And you can't just, you know, sure, there, there are stores within a store like Sephora or I think Ulta inside of Target, but that's maybe, you know, a very limited base uh, of products available. Yeah, you, I mean, that's the thing is you go, you know, you can go down a main commercial drag in a major city and you'll see multiple standalone cosmetic stores because it's complicated, it's daunting. The, the, the time to sell within the store is long enough that generally you're not going to want to commingle with other things because people have used their available shopping time figuring out the cosmetics purchase and then left. I mean, support, Sephora, you know, a lot of the stuff we think about with transactability, flow through, how things convert. Sometimes we, we do look at models like Sephora and how they thought about shelf velocity and, and sort of how fast things, things move and, and sort of where you're seeing consumer affinity or price stickiness. And so, you know, not to get too much into the data science of it, but these are the types of things we think about, you know, running this online marketplace. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, you made your commentary on specialty retail. Um, obviously, you guys with your policy team, as, as we've talked about, are very close to the situation. So glad to hear that, you know, the states and, and the license holders are all incentivized to, to kind of, you know, hold on and, and make sure that your, your grocery store and, and your liquor store is not also consuming or, or selling cannabis. Um, although that's, that's different in Canada, right? I think in Canada, you, you actually have some commingling happening. Uh, not. Not really. There was in the gray market or in Spain, like kind of in the quasi-legal market, they had added there. I don't think in Canada, unless there's something new I'm not aware of, I don't think they had had really any like co-mingling. Um, they still have, I think it's a bit looser of like what- Yeah, we're like quasi. So it's like, there's a glass wall separating a dispensary and a you know liquor store, or they're like next to each other owned by like, you know, ACT, for example. Um, yeah. So that kind of co-mingling. So I think with consumption lounges, we may see some places doing the thing where uh, there's a takeout beer shop sharing a backyard with yep. a consumption lounge or a dispensary where people can kind of do that. I think that kind of commingling works, but I think like, you know, somebody going to Walmart and saying, well, I was going to buy like, you know, a liter of Pepsi and, you know, like some frozen fish sticks and I'm going to buy some cannabis too. It just, it's, it's just yeah. not really how the shopping cycle works. Um, and separately, uh, yeah, cannabis retailers aren't, and brands aren't going to want that to happen. Um, the other thing is, is that, um, you know, you look at the average basket size for cannabis and it's a big meaty average basket size that supports having a standalone location, same as cosmetics and other things like that. I mean, the average you know, transaction that we're seeing on the marketplace while higher than, than most brick and mortar retailers see from two feet walking in is still, you know, up, up near the hundred dollar range, which is a, yep. a good, uh, a good quantum for, for, for a basket. Yeah. And then the revenue per stores are still in the, the millions. Um, you know, yeah. I still remember in 2018 days, seeing that comparison of sales per square foot and Hey, cannabis, this dispensary is higher than Tiffany's higher than Apple. And, you know, whatever yeah. else I was doing a lot of revenue per store. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, I, you know, I feel, 
I think if anything, that the, the retail and consumption experience are going to get more specialized, not less. And we're, we're seeing the hallmarks of that. I think even the way that they're doing these fast in and out kind of light footprint things are, are very cannabis specific with like the pass through counters and things like that. And it just, there aren't too many other goods that you're going to sell in that fashion. Yeah. And I, I think that the cannabis industry could also you know, influence other sort of retail experiences. So uh, some of the innovation that the industry had to do um, could be seen in others in the future. Yeah, I agree. Look, I, I went to a dispensary the other day, basically had two online, two online menuing and ordering kiosks on the wall, four registers with bud tenders standing behind it, a glass counter that was the width of where the bud tenders were standing, and everything else. You either, you know, they said go open up Weed Maps and go on your phone and look through the menu, or you can use one of those two menuing things. Mm-hmm. You told them what you wanted, and somebody pick and packed it behind yeah. the wall. And passed it through on a pass-through counter. The total re- retail square footage couldn't have been more than fifteen by twenty, twenty by twenty, something like that. I mean, let's say twenty by twenty. That's incredibly small, incredibly high throughput, and focused on you. We will we'll give you advice. We'll talk to you about what's good, what's you know what would help you. But kind of like this person's going to pass it pass it over. We're going to hand it to you, and then you're going to walk out. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I was at a store last week where the, the foot traffic was pretty low, but you go behind the back and into, you know, where the cars were parked and they're picking and packing and sending a car out every 15 minutes because that store was 80% delivery. Yeah. And that's exactly right. I still, and I look, I think that's still where the evolution is. I'll go and see a retail location. Okay. Foot, okay. Traffic, you know, front of house. And then they have this big parking lot that's securely gated and everything and they're not doing delivery and i just think yeah miss why are you not gra- why are you not grabbing all this revenue yeah and i'm sure some of it is, is more hey we don't know how to do delivery we don't know how to build a brand there and then i'm sure you're telling them hey you can acquire users uh, on on well, that's and- where we're coming in we're trying to give them the logistics software and say look we can help you we, we can take the hard part out we can help you compliantly do delivery yeah with the software now, I think you guys got a lot of opportunity because uh, even with the pandemic, uh, you know, going on two plus years now, still a, a lot of uh, retailers could be more omnichannel and still could do more delivery. So still a huge opportunity yeah. there alone. Yeah, that's exactly the way I look at it. So there's part of our growth. Uh, you, you, you know, there's so many facets to our growth, but one of our pieces of growth could just be storefronts, which need to do this to get more efficient, just starting to do delivery. And we yeah. can help them with software, with marketing, with deals, with services, with consumer acquisition, consumer retention you know, there's growth right there. Yep. No, definitely. Well, th- thanks a lot for the time, Chris. Really appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. It's great chatting. Uh, good, good kind of sharing notes. And uh, I'm sure we'll speak again.